Welcome to the Shine Freely Podcast. I'm your host, Vicki Reeves, and this is all about human potential. I host conversations with people who are authentic, bold, and kind. Through their life experience, ideas, and research, I'm learning how to shine freely. And in case anything I learn is useful for you, I want to share my experience along the way. My first guest is someone I met just a few days before recording this. Meet Barry Abernathy, a singer and banjo player from the band Appalachian Roadshow, a bluegrass group thought of as the Thinking Man's String Band. Less than three years old, the band has already earned numerous accolades, along with the respect of other luminaries, such as Dolly Parton. Their last album, Trials and Tribulations, made me feel like there's a piece of Appalachia somewhere in my heart, and that the same is true for anyone else who thinks of themselves as American, whether they realize it or not. I'm fascinated by what we can learn and understand about the human experience from a place that has such a rich history, a story of both hardship and hope, with threads of meaning that stretch to every corner of the country. Inspired by the stories of music bringing people together on front porches during times of segregation, Barry and I talk about the role of music and healing. And since you can't see Barry, I'll make a relevant note about his appearance, which he presents in the finest style. You'd never guess while listening to their albums that the talented banjo player is missing four fingers on his left hand. On this episode, he shares what it was like to pursue his interest in music as a child and goes on to tell a heartwarming story of a lifelong connection he made, in part through his unique physical difference. Barry was a total joy to speak with, and I can't wait to see him again. And I especially can't wait to dance to their new record, Jubilation. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Barry Abernathy. Barry Abernathy, welcome. Oh, good to be here, Vicky. You Thank are you. my first guest awesome. of the Shine Freely podcast. That is awesome. I'm so excited to have conversations with people who are authentic, bold, and kind. <laughs> I hope I fit in all those categories. I'm I try convinced to that you do, despite do the fact that we just met. <laughs> and part of that reason is because I saw you perform live a year ago. All of my hair stood up straight. <laughs> I was blown away. Oh, thank you. And then I got your album and immediately put it on the car, like on the drive home. <laughs> and I think typically I enjoy live performances more than the album. Yes. So I was pretty shocked when I enjoyed your album as much as your live awesome. performance. <laughs> awesome. And the way, specifically your album, Tribulation, the way in which you use it as a platform to tell a really rich story yes. about the human experience. That's what we're about. That's what Appalachian Road shows about. We actually talk about that, telling, talking about the human experience, and we want to portray that to the people that hear us. And so I'm glad you picked it up that way. That's awesome. So I'll give our listeners a few quotes from your album. We hear at one point, said more than a trail Appalachia is a spirit mm -hmm. that spirit is one of shared survival and hardships endured tell us more about that <laughs> well I going back I'd have to go back and uh, remember the conversations Jim and myself were having when we wrote that stuff you know we Jim and, and uh, the fiddle player Jim Van Cleve I'm speaking of and my partner and myself and uh, Jordan Laney uh, who is a uh, uh, I guess she'd be a professor. I think it's Virginia Tech, and she she we used to be married to uh, one of the guys that played in Mountain Heart with us, Aaron Ramsey, and that's how we knew Jordan. And she I guess she plays and stuff herself, but she's an expert on Appalachia. She helped us make it sound uh, not too redneck, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is. It, it's um, we we talk about so so. I guess that's up front in the album. We picked the first few songs and we kind of picked the theme for those songs, and, and that's where we wrote the uh, the spoken word thing spirit of the shared survival and i can't remember everything that says right offhand i'd have to listen to it again yeah well i'll give you a few words <clears throat> i have them written down here some of the words we hear throughout the album uh that i think really give the listener a sense of gravity are words like displacement yes. extraction yes. segregation bloodshed and later in the album we hear 
to understand the soul of Appalachia is to understand the hardships, the trials, and the tribulations of America. Yes, yes. Yeah, that is pretty powerful. <laughs> hard, to believe, hard to believe anything like that came <laughs> from a part of me, but uh, yeah, it, there's so many things in that in that particular project, so many uh, different... It, the whole theme of the project, though, was about the hardships, the trials, and tribulations of the Appalachian people as they were settling and, and you know, all the way from the, the enslaved people, uh, the enslaved African people that came over and, and uh, you know, like you say, the displacement and, and all these different things that we talk about. And the song selection, if you'll notice, kind of follows that theme. It's hard to do. It's hard to, I mean, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to, to come up with uh, the material to fit something like that. And then the cool part about about the Tribulation Project that you may or may not know so we had we had just started the band uh 2019 we 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 recorded in late 2018 released our first project in late october started taking dates at the first of the year of 2019 then we started actually touring you know summer of 2019 so july august like that we went on through the winter and march 27th of 2020 was our release date for the tribulation project Wow. And that was the date that they shut the country down. And so we already had it scheduled for release. Why? I mean, it's just one of those things that was meant to be. It was named Tribulations. <laughs> and so it was kind of kind of make a hair stand up on your arm. But, but it was called Tribulation way before we knew about the what we were going to be going through, you know, as, as a country and, and in our world, you know. So I thought that was strange. So they asked us if we wanted to pull it back, you know, and then we're like, well, I mean, we've already scheduled it. Let's just, let's just go with it and see what, you know, it probably did hurt financially, but what a great time really to, to drop a record that, that wasn't planned, you know, it yeah. wasn't planned like that by us anyway. So, uh, yeah, that all, all those things kind of came together, but it, it talks about the tribulations, the trials, the troubles of the Appalachian people. Um, the song selection, if we got a, a, a section after that, that talks about the wars and, and, uh, the brother against brother battles and, and how people were torn asunder through the civil war and all that. And then it goes into the, I wish the wars were all over, which is a Tim Erickson song. And then the, uh, going across the mountain was mm. the next one. Yeah. That, that was a beautiful song. Those songs, one reason I think you feel what you feel in them. We recorded several of these songs, just guitar sitting here, banjo here two vocal mics standing next to me. I mean, Daryl was standing like where you are and we were using SM7s and, and we recorded we recorded that live. And uh, then we, uh, I know we recorded uh, Tribulations live and we recorded uh, the uh, acapella song I sang, The Gospel Train. All those were recorded, no tuning or no anything. They were all recorded live. And then everything we recorded, we tracked live and had scratch vocals, and, you know, and some, some of them we fixed. But I know like... Uh, uh, hard times come again no more daryl he, he recorded that one live and he sang uh his scratch vocal and that's what we kept kept his scratch vocal on it so that i think that's why you feel some of what you feel in in the, the in the music in the authenticity yeah, i think that's that's the case but i know i didn't really answer your question you asked me but well uh, no you did this is perfect <laughs> you said some beautiful things about healing or, or you know referred to them and i want to come back to those yes um but real quick i also want to pause on this comment in the album about to understand these things is to understand America. Yeah. And I had never really thought about that before. Yeah. And I don't have a lot of personal experience with that region of the yeah. country either. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of us don't. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? To, you know, in order to understand these things is really to understand the soul of America. And what do you wish that, you know, people like me who don't have a strong connection to the region, yeah. what, do, what do you wish we understood about it? Well, I mean, myself, and I can't speak for all the guys, uh, everybody, I mean, myself and Jim both had a part in writing this stuff. But for me, uh, I grew up around real, sure enough, authentic Appalachian people that my, my great grandparents were still alive when I was a young man, I'm really on up till I was only in my 20s. So I got to see them and the way they lived. And what they had been through, through the Depression and, and through the wars that they'd fought. I mean, my granddad, my great-granddad, all those, they they all fought in the wars, World War One, World War, War II. Um, my uncles all fought in Vietnam. They all were, were in the, these battles and these things, the, the tribulations and the trials we talk about, plus the, the lifestyle that they lived. I mean, you know, when, when the world began, a man had to, had to get up 
had to get out of the bed, had to dig the, till the ground to make something to eat or, you know, whatever you did to, to, to survive. And these people lived that way. I mean, really, till about 100 years ago or so. I mean, that's the way people lived. And there were all, all, the, all the amenities we have now, nobody had that. So those, these people I grew up around, they all lived that way. They didn't have money in excess or anything, and they lived day to day, week to week. They came through the Depression, and I can remember my great-grandmother sitting at a table till she literally could not because we had so much by the time she was a older elderly lady and, and I was young you know, at the time, but we had so much compared to what she had that she wouldn't leave any food on the table. She would mm. sit and sit and sit, and she'd talk to you, and you didn't realize, I didn't realize at the time what she was doing. <laughs> she was not going to waste any food. So she would sit and eat. Till, and finally, we started realizing. I said, Mama, don't you think Granny is, don't you think she might be getting full, you know? And, and, <laughs> and, uh, and I can remember sitting. And then and she'd get up to the table and have to hold on the table to get herself up. Oh. But, so the, the things those people went through uh, and the way they live their lives is it, so different than what we know in America now. I mean, people, we've had plenty. This has been a land of plenty. And, I, you know, it's we're not always promised it's going to be that way. And so... When you understand what people had to do in Appalachia to survive, I think you understand the, the kind of the soul of America and what America. Uh, I don't know if that ne is necessarily what maybe Jim, when he wrote that part, I, I don't think I actually wrote that part. But to me, what it means is to understand America and, and the soul of America and the work that's been put in and just the survival, you know, just mm -hmm. surviving. Uh, people now in my age even don't don't really realize what it is to just get up every day and have to survive and, and, and live life. You know, people are depressed and they've got too much. We're on our phones all the time and but it's uh, you know there's really a way that uh, if all the lights went off and all the the fuel was gone, that's the way we would live or we'd die. <laughs> yeah. We may find out sooner than yeah. we think. We, we'll live or we'll die. So. <laughs> well, I have the sense from listening to your albums that you, whether you're intending to or not, you're definitely using music as a tool for passing lessons on to current and future generations i hope so i don't know that it's necessarily intended but but definitely you know there there's definitely a a reason for for us doing what we do we, we wanted to have something that was unique that spread so we're all all the partners in this matter from appalachia mm -hmm. uh daryl was born in, and raised in jolo west virginia i was raised in ella j georgia and uh, which is the literally the foot of the Appalachian Trail. I can from the gap of the mountain above my house, I can see where the Appalachian Trail starts on Springer yes. Mountain. Uh, so, Jim Van Cleve was uh, was raised in Canton, North Carolina, which is just south of Asheville, right off the Blue Ridge Parkway. And uh, so, you know, all of us were raised around this this type of music, these type of people. Daryl's dad was a coal miner, and he passed away at 59 years old, I think, in 2004 of lung cancer. So he. Uh, mm. Daryl's lived that. So when we sing songs about that, I mean, it's touching. To, I, I've not seen Daryl. He tells the same story. And every time he tells it, you can feel it. It touches your heart. I, I can feel my heart just hearing you talk yeah. about it. I mean, I remember <laughs> yeah. what it was like. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's very touching and yeah. very heavy. Yeah, it is. It is. And very authentic. It is. And and he, he gets emotional every time he tells it. I mean, that was his dad. You know, he. He uh, he got to see him when he come in wee hours of the morning with coal all over all over his face, and when he told that story, you know he that that's a true story. He he means it, you know. That's uh that's that's the most of the time he got to see him was was then. So our intention though is to is to spread, you know, the just kind of spread mostly the music, but also the the lifestyle the spirit. the spirit of it and the lifestyle that people lived i talk about the logging camps and all that and i literally can remember my granddad was a, was a logger and sawmiller his whole life my uncle my mom's brother still does it today 78 years old and i can remember being little and standing under those horses and they look like we're in a room with a probably eight or nine foot ceiling here and they look like they were their backs were that tall you know the big pergeron horses i think and then belgian horses they were so big and that's what they logged with you know they they logged those mountains and and people got hurt and it was dangerous work you know but uh, we but we love to tell that tell that stuff and people that that don't know get to hear about it and then they these story these songs a lot most of them were written you know back during that time so uh, and a lot of them are true story songs too so which is a great segue to this topic of music as a tool for healing yeah. is something I want to talk about mm -hmm. for a minute. And 
you know, the, the record tribulation very much shows how music has been a force for healing in that region by bringing people together across difference. Absolutely. I mean, people that were literally, there was bloodshed. Oh yeah. 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 And that's really powerful. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's clear that I think music has played a role in this kind of collective healing in that Mm -hmm. region. Um, which is fascinating and something that I've never really thought about. But lately I've been thinking about music as something that is healing on an individual level. Um, And just these last nine months, I've basically had the very good fortune of being able to focus all of my time on healing. That's great. It is great. (laughs) And it's, there's way more to heal than I realized (laughs) when I started, (laughs) but it's fun and it's challenging, but I'm always up for a good challenge. So I've, I've found that uh, artistic expression of any kind um, and definitely music is so profoundly healing. It is. It is. And so I was thinking about that and I was thinking, I was trying to figure out like, what is healing about it? Because it's, it, it doesn't even have to sound good at the end. It's like just <laughs> the act of making it. Thank goodness, because I don't know how to make it yeah. sound good, but um, just the act of making it is so healing. And so then I started thinking about why that is and I I realized that you know the process of creating art the creation process itself is healing and then you think what is creation it's birth and what's more healing than that I I can't think of anything really it's it's uh the create the creative process of music is really it 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 does it for me that's what does it for me and and when you talk about healing uh so I, I got out. So I had I had neck surgery in in 2015, and my I don't have fingers on my left hand. So I don't know if you know that, but I don't have fingers on my left hand. So I, play, I noticed. I've always played the banjo over the top with the thumb and my piece of my what's what a little bit of a my buddies always call it my nub, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, that's how I chord. So I've always had a good right hand. Well, when my neck started getting bad, actually it's been probably 10 or 12 years ago when I started noticing that my right hand wasn't working the way it was supposed to. Mm. And so that's got to be nerve wracking over time. It stressed me out. Unbelievable. So 2015, I stepped back. I'm I'm, Jim left Mountain Heart. I left Mountain Heart, the group, the previous group I was, I had, I'd owned it for almost 17 years. So I stepped back, I sold it to the younger guys and and I was like, well, musically speaking, we're not, we're not going down a path that I can lead. I'm the leader of the band, and I can't lead us the direction that everybody wants to go. We were working 115, 120 dates a year before, and then I got these younger guys, and they were all unbelievably great and great people. I love all of them. But the direction they were going, I couldn't lead that. I, mm-hmm. It wasn't so, – so Appalachian Roadshow is, is – a lot of this is coming from my heart and where I came from, and then the other guys that, that we added to this – it had to be theirs too, Mm-mm. because I knew that I would ha- end up having to lead this somehow and take it, book the book the shows, make the connections because that's just what I've always done. So I wanted it to be something that I could sell from my heart to people. I wanted people to understand from my heart where I come from. Uh, the gospel music's real heavy in it. I, I can, I mean, you heard on tribulations. That was my preacher preaching before the song tribulations. That's the preacher I grew up with. So uh, they had a cadence to their preaching they get in a cadence and he they would stammer around read he had a third grade education and couldn't read when he announced his calling to preach and he would go work all day and go out by a lantern at night and go out in the woods because he didn't want to tell anybody he'd been called to preach and he would go out in the woods and he'd take a dictionary and a bible and he taught himself to read enough to where he could read the bible and uh and you should have heard that man sing he was unbelievable didn't even realize he could sing but uh those influences are, are what's in my heart. And so I wanted to be able to take that to people. Uh, and and uh, anyway, talking about getting out of it. So the healing part process, getting back to that, I'll, I'll, get, I'll go in circles if you let me. So no, you I'll let you. <laughs> <laughs> but the healing process. So I had neck surgery and I stepped away and I was out about a year and I was about to go crazy. I mean, it mm-hmm. was just I've always been able, we've always recorded projects with the bands I'm in. I always had a big hand in that. I love putting stuff together. I love putting a band together. I love bringing people together and seeing what 
you know, does this guy fit like I think he does? Does, you know, does what he feels about this music feel the same way we feel about it? And I've always loved that. I've loved putting the songs together, whether it be writing or, or just taking an old song and rearranging and stuff like that. Well, I didn't have that anymore. So, um, I back, step back just a little bit. So I was all about ready to go in for my neck surgery. And, and you see, they cut me right in here, I think. And, uh, they went in, they took three discs, herniated discs, and they took them out and fused it together and replaced those, I guess you'd say replacing the disc or whatever. And they, they put screws in there, titanium rods and all wow. this stuff. So the doctor Iron told Man. me, he said, do you sing? And I said, well, I sing, but I'm not like a lead singer. I play the banjo. And he said, well, there's a 50% chance that we could cut something that you might not be able to sing again. Mm-hmm. So I, it scared me. So I thought, well, my kids have never heard me sing much lead. I've just sung in the shower, and I've sung off over here. And I've sung a little bit, you know, but not a lot. And so I sit down with my phone, and I go in the bathroom when everybody goes to sleep at night and get a guitar out, and I would sing these songs I liked, that, that stuff I'd found down through the years, stuff I might have wanted to do with Mountain Heart before, you know. And uh, I had a list of about 30 or 40 songs I had put on my phone. I thought, well, now my kids at least can hear me singing these songs that I've kind of kept hid, you know. Well, one day I saw Jim, my partner and fiddle player in the band, and uh, I saw him in, in town. He had left Mountain Heart as well, and we had been together for, I think, 17 years at the time, you know. And uh, anyway, he, he was playing with Josh Turner, and I saw him, and I said, hey, I, I want you to hear this. And I had a song, and I, he said, where'd that come from? I said, I was, just, I was thinking about cutting it with Mountain Heart, but we didn't. And he said, so that's just you and a guitar? And I said, yeah, he said, dude you need to cut a record and i said i can't do that i'm I'm out of it you know i said i can't even play anymore he said let's take your guitar and go in and he said we'll hire somebody to play banjo and he said you need to do a record and i said well let me tell you what i'm thinking about i started this appalachian roadshow stuff you know start talking about appalachian roadshow and the and what i wanted to try to share with people and he was like nodding his head he said it's going to take me a little time, he said, but I'm in. If you do this, I'm, I'm in. It's going to take me, because he had a job, a good job, you know. And he said, it's going to take a little time. I said, well, it's going to take me time to put it together. So in the meantime, he co-produced a solo project with me. Uh, it's Barry Abernathy and Friends. I had I had uh, all my buddies on it. Jason Moore, who played in Mount Heart with us, played the bass. Jim played the fiddle. Brian Sutton played guitar. Uh, I had uh, Rob Ikes play some dobro on it. Uh, Vince Gill sang two songs with me on it. Uh, my hero, the first band I ever played with, Doyle Lawson with Doyle Lawson Quicksilver. He was on it with me. Uh, Rhonda Vincent was on it. Um, Dan Tominski, uh, old brother, where art thou? You know, the Dan, uh, Allison Krauss and Unistation mm-hmm. Dam was on it. So we had a lot of great guests on there. And uh, so anyway, we recorded that project, and I took it to a label. That, that were they were just about to start a label billy blue records and uh, i took it to the label and let him hear it and he said so just tell me a little bit about yourself and what your plans are blah 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 you know and so we started talking and i started talking about appalachian road show and he was like that's very interesting and he said uh, I, I would be interested in that so we put we ended up putting the solo project on a back burner and we went ahead in a few weeks and i started calling all these guys i said hey we're doing this we're doing it. So I called Darrell Webb and, and, and we started putting the stuff together and, and met at the studio and recorded the first project and, uh, and kind of the rest is history from there. But what I'm getting back once again to the, to the healing process, I had four years that I was off the road, not taking music out to the people and not being able to see the people I had spent my whole life, uh, you know, making acquaintance with and, and getting to know. Uh, so I spent all that time off. And when I got to create music again, and when I got to take it out again to the level that, that we wanted to t- take it to, you know, um, not just playing on the porch, but I mean, I love that too, but I want to record it. I want to rec- record it right. I want it to, to affect people. Like you said, you know, that it affected you. That, that thrills me to no end. That's better than money for mm-hmm. me. And, uh, that creative process really helped heal me because I, I really felt like I was broken almost because I couldn't play anymore. And I didn't, you know, I, I didn't think I'd ever be able to play again. And I still struggle, but I've got a lot, a lot better since we started this band. I mean, I, were, I was at the place with Mountain Heart. I literally could not do a, a roll on the banjo. I couldn't do a forward wow. roll. And uh, so, I mean, you know, I did did the creative process heal my hand. I don't know about that, but at the same time, it, it, it definitely gave me the motivation to and the, the spirit to, to help the healing all that well i'll tell you when i was driving to the festival last week 
Uh, and I got there and I said to my friends, you know, I've, I've had mental health on my mind a lot for the last several months and definitely watched a lot of my friends struggle. Yeah. I've had my own struggles and on the drive there, I was so excited to see you guys. <laughs> and, uh, I said to everyone, like, there is nothing better that we could all be doing for our collective mental health right now <laughs> than enjoying this well, yeah, fantastic great. music. That's so. great. There was, some, there was some great music at Larry Fest. There was a lot of great music there. There was. A lot, um, a lot of good friends. I had a lot, a lot of people I've played. I, I started the first professional band I was ever in was Russell Moore's band, Third Time Out. I, played, I was in that band, first, first professional, 93. I recorded a record with them and toured in 93 with them, so... I always tell people I'm like a little bit nervous to tell anyone about Larry Fest because I grew up in Austin yeah. and, you know, we were at a show the other day, uh, similar to Larry Fest mm -hmm. and it was fantastic. You know, we're sitting on the grass enjoying ourselves, extremely high quality music yeah. and you don't have like 10,000 people all sweating on you and like yeah. fighting for a $10 bottle of water or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, this is what Austin was like 30 years ago. People <laughs> like, don't yeah. tell anybody. Yeah. yeah. It's Larry Fest is really cool. The first time I played Larry Fest, I literally, I mean the, the stage is built. That's literally a lawnmower shed that he's got there and they've spruced it up through the years. The first time I played it years ago, it was so funny. I, I, we walked down the stage, and I'm like, we're literally playing. He's got lawnmowers back here in the room behind <laughs> us, you know. And the crowd was just like it was last week. And uh, there was a guy that, I mean, uh, most of the most of the folks there are not this, but this guy was like a Harley rider. This guy was in the front. He was a huge guy. And he, he stood up there, and he, he took his hand, he slammed on the front of the stage, and he said, you better play me some Skinner. He wanted to hear Leonard Skinner. <laughs> so Josh Schilling was playing with us at the time. It was probably 2007. And I looked at Josh and I said, you better figure something out. <laughs> and so Josh just took his guitar. He said, just follow me. And he played uh, Simple Man. And the guy was Perfect. thrilled to death. He was, so he covered Simple Man for the guy. And, and uh, we actually had to start doing that every once in a while after that because people had heard it. I think it got online, you know, somehow. And, that was that was cool but yeah i always said we it's a huge festival small festival but it's a huge festival there's a lot of people and on this guy's property and we're literally playing in, on the back of his lawnmower shed but it's such a great place it's such, such a, a great, great place. place and the best thing about it i mean first of all the quality of the music i'm so impressed with every year it's Me like too. how do how do they get such a fantastic lineup and then the people mm -hmm. every single person you mm -hmm. meet there is so wonderful and yeah. it's like even if they're not always wonderful yeah. they understand that when you walk into larry fest yeah. like you're gonna be a wonderful person oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're wonderful there anyway yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it's um, great okay so a few more questions so you mentioned your hand mm -hmm. um and you were born with your hand like yes, that right i was born that way so I'm really curious about your experience, like when you decided you wanted to become a musician, because that's a pretty <laughs> bold thing to do without yeah. four fingers. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, I loved, like I said, I, church was a big part of my life and I loved singing, getting up and leading songs in church and stuff. I went to an old time Baptist church in, in the North Georgia mountains and uh, I loved that and I loved music. My great grandmother had a old hide head banjo she just plucked with one finger and my neighbor uh who's my cousin he had a, a gibson rb 100 banjo and i i mean it was i was just enamored by that it's actually the first banjo i ever touched and uh i'll, I'll sum that part of the story up real quick by saying that's the banjo i'm playing right now wow. that's this banjo you saw me play on stage that's what i'm playing <laughs> he, he he got a, a brain tumor and he passed away in 91 and then his son was a little younger than me, and he passed away several years ago. And, and his wife left me the banjo. She gave me the banjo. She said, I think you would use it. Well, I put it up for years. I put it up for years and years because I wanted it to be just like – I wanted it to smell just like I remembered. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be just like I remember when I was a kid because the first banjo I ever touched. Then, So when I left Mountain Heart, I sold all my banjos because I couldn't play anymore, but I had this one that she gave me, and I, I just didn't want to touch it. I wanted to be able to look at it and smell it, mm. and, and it'd be like it was. But the neck was kind of in bad shape, and I thought, you know, I couldn't really ever play it out. So when we started this band, I got it out and had Frank Neat, who's one of the great luthiers, he made a neck for it. He uh, 
helped me put a, a tone, tone ring in it. We put one of Jerry Sloan's tone rings in it, and it's a phenomenal banjo now. I love it. But that's the first banjo I ever played. Fantastic. It was that one. So what what age were you when you decided you wanted to become a musician? That all that said that, that was probably I wanted I wanted to play at at like 11 or 12 but I didn't know how I would play and I started just kind of behind the scenes watching seeing what was going watching other people and I liked all the instruments but the banjo caught me a little bit I I started hearing started hearing people play and I started watching they played it was open so the, a lot of the stuff was played in open they would capo up to the fifth fret, you know, from G to C, you had everything open. And so I thought, well, I've got two fingers here. I can get a part of the chord, but you're not strumming. So you're playing with, with, you know, individual notes. So if I've got an open string somewhere, I've got time to move this finger from here to here and hold this one here and move from here to there, you know, and kind of run up and down the neck. Yeah. So I thought maybe I could do that. And, Did the and physics equation yeah, in your head. Yeah, <laughs> so I started getting that in my head. And so about 14, somewhere before I turned 15, I told my mom, I said, I want a banjo. And she said, honey, you know, you can't, you know, you know, that's not, that don't make any sense. I, I, I love you and, and, and I know you love the same, but that just don't make any sense. I can't afford to buy you a banjo. She said, I said, well, I want one. I think I can learn how to play it. And so she went and bought me a, like a Sears and Roebuck. Literally, it was, ter- it was terrible. <laughs> it was like 50 bucks. And uh, she said, if you can learn to play a song all the way through from start to finish, I'll buy you whatever you want. Wow. She didn't realize how much a banjo cost. You know, she, and I said, will you buy me a Gibson? And she said, I will. And she didn't know they, yeah, how expensive they were. So uh, fortunately for her, I picked the cheaper of the, of the Gibson banjos just because I felt sorry for her. But, so I was in high school, you know, in the early high school at the time. So uh, it wasn't a couple of weeks. I was playing. I got the Earl Scruggs book and record, and I put it on a, on a turntable. And I, I learned, started learning how to play songs. I learned gosh four or five songs though i got the rolls down pretty quick not down but i got where i could make it through them and i I learned within a month's time i was playing several songs so she had to she had to put up or shut up (laughs) (laughs) so then was she convinced pretty quickly she was convinced and she said she said um she said i'll buy you one so she went and i picked out i mean immediately i didn't want to wait so we went to store in dalton georgia and they had an rb250 in there and so she that's what i wanted so i got it it was probably a this would have been 84 or 5, something like that, maybe. And so she bought it for me. She had to make payments on it. I mean, she wow. yeah, she worked it. She worked and made house payments, too, you know. So so she made payments on it for me and paid it off. And, and uh, that was my first banjo I actually ever owned. But anyway, I was about 14. Yeah, she, she's great. She would do it now. If I told her I, if I, told her I wanted a, a pre, <laughs> pre-war flathead, she'd probably go to work and try to help me buy one. <laughs> so I keep my mouth shut now. But um, anyway... That was the start of me playing banjo, and and while I was trying to decide what I wanted to do, we were uh, it would have been Christmas the, the year I just turned fourteen. She went Christmas shopping, and I went with her, and we were once again in Dalton, Georgia. That's where the malls, that's where we had had something besides you know a local store. So we were in, they had Turtles record stores in the South back then, and I don't know if they ever had them up here, but Turtles mm-hmm. was a was a record store chain in the South, and every mall had one in it. So I go in this record store and I go immediately go to bluegrass and stuff with banjos in it. And I saw this record and this won't mean a whole lot to you probably, but some of your listeners might know who I'm talking about. But so it was Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver and the record was called Rock My Soul. And it was a gospel record, bluegrass gospel record. But on the on the back, it had these cool guys, you know, the front, they were just dressed, you know, it's the gospel record, but their shirts are unbuttoned down to their sternum, you know, and everything. And uh, so anyway, it was recorded around 1980 or so, 1981 maybe. And I turned it over and Terry Balkan was on the back. And he's playing, he's holding a banjo. And I was like, this looks like something I'd like. And I said, mama, you get me this for Christmas. She said, I guess so. Throw it in the car. So she threw it in there. Well, we got back to my aunt's house. And I couldn't wait, so I had to open it up, and, and my aunt had a turntable, or my cousin did in her room. So they're in there wrapping presents and stuff, getting ready for the big Christmas party. I go in there, and I bust this record open, and I slap it on the turntable and turn the volume up and turn it on. And the kickoff is a song called On the Sea of Life, and it is, uh, uh, it's Doyle Lawson's, it's Doyle Lawson's uh, it was his hit. You know, it ended up being his hit. And uh, anyway, the banjo kickoff on it, I thought, I was like, oh, my God. 
gosh, it just tore me up, you know, and the uh-huh. harmony, they sang great harmony. And immediately that was my goal. I wanted to be a part of Doyle Austin and Quicksilver. Mm-hmm. That was what I wanted to do at 14 years old. At 23, almost 24, I was playing with Doyle Austin and wow. Quicksilver. I spent almost six years with Doyle. Um, but yeah, it was a great experience. That's all I, I, it was like my goals in life were almost over when I, when I, <laughs> when I got a job with Doyle. But so that was, that was a part of my experience of wanting to play music when I, I got that record i knew then i had to have a banjo and that's why i started plotting my my scheme you know to get one and so that was around like i said i just turned 14 when i started plotting and before i was 15 i was i had a banjo and was playing so so what have you set your goals on now well it's just day to day now it's just kind of survival at this age you just <laughs> <get> kind of, <laughs> and we it's like i said we've got two little kids we adopted so they're they're um, they were four and five they're seven and eight and the little girl's about to be nine so uh so we're we're focused on that too and then my oldest daughter's in college she started at uh, east tennessee state university in the bluegrass program uh, cool. yeah so she's in the bluegrass program at east etsu my youngest daughter just graduated high school and she'll probably end up up there with her you know before it's over with i don't know but but uh so yeah we, we're just focused on living doing creating music here we just got uh finished with a project called jubilation so is that intentional contrast to tribulation yeah, intentional yeah now now i will say that when you've got bluegrass and old time music mixed together there's going to be it's hard to find all happy but yeah. but it's but it's as positive as a, as a bluegrass project could be and it's really upbeat and especially front loaded we we've got songs uh, Jim and myself wrote uh, we wrote uh, the, the kickoff song is our first single it's called Blue Ridge Mountain Baby and it just it's just a happy frolicking song that talks about uh, and you probably heard is this it is this the La 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 no the La La is the second song <laughs> okay so it's, and it's going to be our second single great so, so yeah it's really really happy up front and it's uh, so so Dolly Parton did the uh the voiceover, like Tribulations, you hear the Sam uh-huh. Elliott voice. You know, well, on, on this one, Dolly Parton did, uh, she actually sent us a letter uh, uh, several months ago, and she wanted us to sing on a song with her on her Run, Rose, Run project. for Beautiful. The, so so we, me and Daryl and Jim sang harmony with her on a song called said, Dark Night, Bright Future. And so we asked her to return the favor when we got this project ready. We we did the background music, and we said, ask her if she would uh do the the voiceover for us you know and oh. so she read she read this uh very well written i mean jim and myself didn't write this one but uh, and we can't tell who wrote it because it, it would make him where he couldn't play us anymore so <laughs> but he's a great writer our favorite writer wrote this uh about jubilation and it talks about coming from tribulation into into jubilation talking about the dark times and how how people, you know, there's basically a light at the end of the tunnel, and mm-hmm. for every, every valley, there's a mountain, and and you know, for every trial, there's there's also a jubilation. You know, there's a there's a time of of joy if you can suffer through it and, and, and press through it. So, uh, she she did a great job with the voiceover. That so then we got that voiceover is very happy. Then we've got um, Blue Ridge Mountain Baby and La La Blues and uh, a song called Kidder Cole, which was written by a man in the around uh waynesville north carolina he was a judge his name was uh felix eugene alley and it's he literally the song starts my name is felix eugene alley i've got a girl in cashers valley (laughs) (laughs) and so he taught and it's a true story he was 16 and uh, he they said it's the only song he ever wrote i don't think he was an old-time player or nothing but he had a girl named kidder cole that he would go to these barn dances and try to court and uh, she, there was a guy named Charlie Wright, and she'd always end up hanging out with Charlie Wright. And he, and so he just told his story. He said, "He said I may never win a fight, but I can't stand that Charlie Wright. <laughs> <laughs> just because confound his soul, he danced that night with Kidder Cole." And uh, so the song is just, it's, it's, it's just cute. It's a cute song. <laughs> it's but something everyone it's can relate funny. to. Yeah. So the whole, the whole early part of the project is that, and then it gets a little darker, but it never gets too dark like Tribulation, you know. And, and then by the end. Um, it's kind of a perfect ending. There, there's a there's a war song called Brother Green or the Dying Soldier. It just depends on which version you, you've uh, heard, but it's an old, old, old song. And uh, it at the end it says he's talking to he had been shot, but after all the the how rough it was, and he's talking about dying and all this stuff. At the very end, he says, uh, uh, 
But he tell her, I'll see her in heaven or whatever. And he said, because I love my Jesus. And then, then the, the music fades out and it goes away. So it's, <laughs> it, it ends up being, it's like, it gets real dark and all of a sudden there's a light at the end of the tunnel again. So the whole, the whole album is, has got that theme to it. So, and it was, it was on purpose. Jim actually said, we've got to title the next project Jubilation because, you know, and so, so our picture on the album, we're all holding our instruments over our heads and laughing. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's the whole theme of it is, is great. So it's a happy Beautiful. Happy, happy project. Yeah, and when does it come out? Jubilation? Uh, October the seventh, I think it is. October seventh or ninth. Seventh is on a Friday, I think. So that, Great. yeah, that's when it comes out. So uh, you mentioned your kids. I'd uh, love for you to share the story of your adopted kids. Oh, I got gosh. to see it on the Today Show, <laughs> and you? man, are they cute! Oh, they're they're something else. I, I talked to them a little while ago. They were getting out of school. They don't realize that you're working. They're just like. My wife was picking them up from school, and immediately they go in. They don't say, hey, they go straight into conversation. Dad, you want me to tell you why? I was in the uh, in the nurse's office, and I'm like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and the little girl, Zoe, she said, so-and-so punched me on the left side of my face. And, and I said, well, did you punch him back? I said, a little boy punched you? She said, yep. I said, did you punch him back? She said, no, daddy, I'll get in trouble. <laughs> I said, well, the Bible says turn the other cheek. I said, so you're going to have to give him the other one, I guess. And then the little boy, he starts saying, daddy, guess what? Daddy, guess what? I said, what? He said, I've got a, I've got Owens Raptor. He got a, he got a prize because I want her a, uh, I want her a stuffed animal at the Georgia Mountain Fair Tuesday. And so we, I spent $5 on a game for each one of them. I took $5 and of course I won with her $5 and his, I didn't, he was mad. It's not so, fair. Not fair. So he wanted something. So I think my wife must've bought him. Oh, it's wrapped her off of uh, Jurassic park. <laughs> so they don't know, they don't realize you're working, but anyway, yeah, the, the, the story, if you want me to tell the story, um, my, my daughter, Chastity, my oldest daughter, she just, she just turned 21, but she was, it's been three over three years ago now she was working she worked through high school she worked at a daycare center after school and uh in this daycare they would bring in foster kids and kids that was you know been placed in locally there and they would be in there some of them a week or two some of them a few months some of them would be in and out you know some of them stayed um and there was local families too you know but a lot of foster kids came in and out of there well she was always coming in with a little baby took a picture of a baby she said daddy you should see this baby you know oh gosh you should see this and I, and they were all beautiful kids and and but we've never me and my wife have never talked about adopting ever we've never talked about fostering or adopting or anything one day she comes in she says daddy you've got to see these kids this little boy's got a hand just like yours and I, and I said, really? And, I, and it was intriguing. You know, I said, really? And she said, it's just like yours. She said, I've never seen nobody just like that. And she said, he was born that way. She said, he's so cute. And I said, listen, you've brought in dogs. You brought in cats. You brought in goats. You brought in everything. And I said, I have to feed and work and pay for everything and feed everything you bring in. And you just go gallivanting around and living life. And, and, and we're all stuck here taking care of your stuff. I said, she said, I just wish there was a way we could help them. I just feel like we should help them. I said, honey, what could we do? We just barely pay our bills. There's no way we could help them. And, and I said, but I, I get it. I get the spirit of what you're doing, you know, and I passed it off. Well, a couple of weeks went by, and I was taking my youngest daughter to my mom's. I was going on the road to play music. And uh, we just got this band off the ground. And um, it would have been, I think it would have been around – it had been the weekend of Father's Day weekend uh, three years ago. So this past Father's Day was three years. Anyway, we uh, I was taking my youngest daughter to my mom's, and we just started riding up the road. And I was probably two miles or so from the daycare center. Nothing in my mind about that at all. I was in travel mode. I was on my way to Nashville to meet a bus, and we were going to be gone for two or three days. And this was on like a Wednesday, and I was coming home Sunday or Saturday night late. And uh, anyway, I was about two miles from the daycare center, and it it literally felt like God got in the car with me. It, it was so strong. The feeling was so strong, and I was just like over overwhelmed. And I, I was like, I'm going to have to go by and see those kids. And I just looked at my youngest daughter, and I said, and I'm going to stop just for a minute by the daycare center. And, and she said, why? I said, I'm going to stop and see those kids for a minute. And she said, Daddy, no. 
I knew you were going to do that. And I said, you did not. And she said, I said, I'm just going to stop by and see him. I said, Chastity wanted us to see him. She said, she hadn't mentioned him in two weeks. And I said, I'm going to stop by. She said, well, I'm your baby. She said, I'm the baby, you know. And I think she was like 15 at the time or so. Anyway, we stopped and uh, I saw the little boy first, Tyler. And he was, so my daughter had shown him videos because his hand was like that. She said, look, my daddy's got a hand like yours. And she showed him videos of me playing the banjo. Well, he had never known. He just had a mom. He never had a dad. And him and Zoe, neither one. They got different dads, but they neither one of them had never known a dad. So, uh, I mean, it was it was touching. So I, I went in, and he was. they were outside. He was like at a little picnic table, <clears throat> sitting with his friends doing something on the table. And he just looked up, and he saw me. And he thought, he literally thought I was his daddy. And he, he jumps up, and he pats his buddy on the head and he said hey look look he said that's my dad and he jumps up and he just takes off running you've seen the pictures of him. his glasses are yeah. that thick you know they're a quarter inch they're half inch they look like he runs and he just jumps and lands on my chest and just climbs his way up he's four years old climbs up and he grabs me by the face and he said are you my dad and he just you know didn't talk plain he said you my dad and i said i was just over, i was overtaken you know and he said you're my dad. And he just kissed me and loved me. And he said, hey, look, y'all, this is my dad. And he's patting my face and checking out my beard and just looking at me, touching my face all over. And, I mean, I was broken. I literally was broken. And I, and I thought, well, it's sad, but, you know, there's, you know, there's no way. First off, we, we're not foster parents. We didn't know their situation at all. But, anyway, I left. I met the little girl. She was shy. She, she spoke to me, but she was shy. So I left, and... It just got stronger and stronger the farther I went. I drove about 45 minutes, and by the end of – and I don't know how your audience is just going to have to take me for who I am, but, <laughs> but this is just who I am. If they like it, they they like me, and if they don't, they won't like me. But but I started praying, and I was like, Lord, why are you putting this on me? Why why am I feeling this? Why are you putting this on me? I, I'm I, We just barely make it. I've got two kids that are, I'm trying to get finished out here, and – we're not foster parents. I know, I feel what's going on, but I can't do this. I'm 50 years old. There's no way I can do this. If you want me to take them out, there's no way. Well, I finally just gave in, and, I, and the last words I said in my prayer was, okay, Lord, if you want us to do this, I'm, I'm, I'm laying it down. I'm giving it all over to you, and you can make it happen. And basically show me, you know, show me because we're not foster parents. We haven't been through the classes. No way we could ever take them. No way I'll ever ask to take them. So you just show me how you make something happen. And if, if it's that way and it's your will, then I'll give in. That was on Wednesday evening. On Friday, my wife had the kids. We were their ninth placement in 10 months. So wow. the, the parents had had them, so they were just wild, and nobody could handle them. So the parents that had them were a young couple, and they were trying to see if they could handle it, and they couldn't handle it. So they brought them back and said, we don't think we're going to be able to, to make this. We're going to call the state. Well, during this time, the state said, well, they don't want to take them this weekend. Is there anybody here at the daycare that could take them? I mean, this is all. This is the way wow. God works. So so they told my daughter, we're trying to find a place to, for these kids to be this weekend. So she calls my, my wife. Now, all this time I had done this, me and my wife had never spoke about it. So when I told my wife, she called me. I remember exactly where I was at. She was didn't in, know that you had gone to visit. No. So she didn't know. We had never even spoke about it. We've never spoke about anything like this. She called me and she said, what are you doing? I said, I, I don't know how to explain it. I said, <laughs> I said I'm just kind of, I said, I'm, I'm praying and I'm a little bit mad. And she said, why? And I said, well, I said, I went by and saw those kids today. And she said, you did? And I said, yeah. And she said, real quiet. She said, I went by and saw them this morning before I went to work. I said, really? She said, what are you thinking? And I said, I'm not thinking nothing. <laughs> and she said, seriously, are you thinking that we might need to help them? And I said, I said, I don't know how to explain it. But I said, I, there's a strong feeling. I'll just tell you that. There's a strong feeling. I don't know what it is exactly. But I said, we just, she said, well, what can we do? I said, we can't do nothing. I said, I've done told the Lord if he made it work, if he made something happen, then we would, we would be obedient. And if not, then we're just going to keep living our lives. And so Friday, the parents said they, they, Thought they wasn't going to be able to take them back. Was there somewhere they could be? So since my daughter worked there, they called it fictive kin. I have only thing I know is fictive kin means 
next of kin so somebody that works with these kids like a teacher or whatever could take them in for a while wow so my wife went and picked them up on friday she took them back on monday thinking well maybe the parents will take them back she took them back monday morning the parent other parents called the state and said we're not going to be able to to get them so the state called the daycare and said that, you know we're coming to pick the kids up we're going to send them to a group home and they're going to be have to be separated because this is like nine placements you know we can't mm-hmm. it, it's not working we're gonna have to separate them to somebody will adopt one at a time or whatever and uh so so we had spent the weekend my family spent the weekend with them and on sunday i got home it's father's day mm-hmm. and we went to church sunday morning and it was just it was the sweetest thing the kids were so sweet and uh loving oh my goodness they just especially the little boy the little girl was a little more wounded you know mm-hmm. she was a little older when she lost her mom you know her mom uh, had to, they had to take her take him away from their mom um and uh the little boy was just looking for he was just looking for a daddy and a family he just he was looking for a family he was tired of that, taking care of himself mm-hmm. at three years old or four years old anyway they were so sweet so monday um they called and said they were going to take them to a daycare and so defects some of the defects workers got together and started talking about it. they called some people with the state and they said well since we call it fictive kin, if they'll go ahead and start their foster classes, they can they can take them and and wow. foster them. So they so we took them in on Monday. We went back and picked them up that evening on Monday. They had nothing. They had no toys, no clothes, hardly at all. People in the community gave. You wouldn't believe. I mean, I, my house is so piled full of toys and clothes right now that <laughs> it'll take us years to ever get it cleaned out. But people gave and helped so much and. Uh, and it's just they've just been they fit right in as a part of our family from the very get-go and now i mean i can't imagine i can't imagine loving anybody any better mm-hmm. and and i can't imagine being loved any more than than what they they love us i mean it's amazing how, how much they love us and and they look up at us like their real mom and dad i i really believe tyler still thinks that i'm his his uh biological dad I mean, because our hands are alike. And every time, if, if if he was here right now and we were talking, he would walk up to you and he'd say, hey, guess what? Guess what? And he'd poke you. And he'd say, me and my dad got the same hand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does he want to play the banjo too? Yeah, he plays. He strums a mandolin right now. The banjo's a little too big for him. Sure. So, he, so he's got a mandolin and he strums it. Uh, Eastman actually gave him a mandolin, presented it to him on stage at a festival in North Carolina. They called me and said, we'd like to give him a mandolin. I said, well, sure. So he got ready to go get his mandolin, and he said, Dad, am I going to get on stage? And I said, if you can handle it. And he said, I want to. He said, Dad. And I said, well, he said, I want to be a cowboy. And I said, you want to be a cowboy? He said, He said, yep, I want to be a cowboy. And I said, all right. So I took him to the cowboy store down in Jasper, Georgia, and, and uh, got him a hat and a button-up shirt and a the boots and the pants and the belt buckle and the whole nine yards and he got up on stage and and strummed his mandolin with us when they give it presented it to him yeah it was it was awesome it was awesome but yeah they're they're dandies and it's uh it's a true story it's not my story i don't tell it for for self-edification it's god's story i mean he he put that together and ain't nobody can make me believe any different. It, it, it was meant to be, and, and uh, I would have never thought ever. If, if you'd have told me on Tuesday that I was ever going to have fosters or adopted kids, I said, we adopted them a year later, less than a year later. So they let us adopt them. But if you'd ever told me that we were going to have adopted kids, I would have I said, you're crazy. There's no way. An amazing thing is I was complaining about us just barely making it, I've done better. This band, my business has done better. Everything's done better. It's just like God's just provided a way for us. I mean, I definitely ain't getting rich, but it's just like the way He's been provided to, to for us to. The path is laid out before us if we can if we can stay in it. In other words, it's it's the way it feels anyway. It's just amazing how how God takes care of His own if uh, if people listen to Him. So, but it's definitely not me. People say, "Oh, you're good. Y- y'all are such good people." I said. Don't say that. You you should follow us around. You wouldn't think we was good people, <laughs> but but God's good and those kids are good and they deserve a chance and and uh, so maybe we've at least gave them a chance. I hope anyway. <laughs> well, on that Today Show clip, I think one of the hosts said, "Your family fits like a puzzle." It does, yeah. And you know, when I think about, uh, I personally I don't like to use the word God just because yeah. everyone has their own definition yeah. and yeah. I think it's a confusing word yeah. then because everyone means something different by it. Uh, and, but if I just try 
to somehow define that which is divine yes. in a way that people can really understand. There's something about this concept of when things really fit together mm -hmm. like a puzzle. Yeah. It's for me it's just so divine. Yeah. Yeah. Well it is and, and I'm I'm not I'm like I said, I know your audience may be different, but I do I do absolutely know that that what I believe to be God Almighty sitting in the car with me and, and led me to, to pick these kids up. I, I know that for a fact. Nobody could beat me with a hammer and tell me any different, but everybody's got their own way they believe, and, and that's yeah. that's all good. I'm not, I don't force my my opinions on anybody else, but I will say that that's how it happened. That is definitely how it happened. I couldn't take credit for it myself. I, I'm not that I'm not that big, and I'm not that smart. So. <laughs> I tell you what. Next time you come on my podcast, mm -hmm. we'll spend an hour talking about the definition of God. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, last question. I think. Uh, do you have any advice for young people? Well, I guess I could. I mean, I, I'm, I've always just lived, I, and these guys in the band will tell you, I live by the seat of my britches. I just, I'm a, I'm a real whimsical <laughs> person. Like I said, God knew that when he, he didn't give me time to think about adopting kids. <laughs> so so that's just who I am. I, if I decide I'm going to do something, I, I pursue it. I do it to the best of my ability. Uh, I, I think some of that some of that personality comes from being uh, having no fingers on my hand and, you know, raising in a school in the North Georgia mountains. Kids are cruel. You know, you're mm. you're you're under the you're under the gun from start to finish, you know, and, and so so I, I learned how to take adversity. I learned how to take uh, some verbal abuse and, and I learned and physical abuse and I learned how to dish some physical abuse out. How does one learn how to do that? I mean, do you just not shy away from it? Just be willing to expose yourself to hardship? You know, I don't it's hard to explain. I, I remember when I was real little, my mama told me, she said, now, you better not get to school, and if you get a whipping at school, you get a whipping at home. And, you know, that's back then they would wire your butt out for mm -hmm. anything. And so, you know, everybody's got different opinions, but it built – there was something about what I went through that built some character. I, I'm not saying I've got a great character, but I will say this. I come through there, – there were some rough people, and I went yeah. to school with kids that some of them were rough, and they were, they were real abusive. And because my hand was like that, they'd make fun of you well – after a couple of years of school, I was just like, you know, Mama, this this boy, he bit he bit my shoulder and took a hunk of skin out, and this other boy punched me, and and she said, well, don't let him punch. You. I said, well, you told me I get a whipping it. That when I when I come home, if I got a whipping at school, she said, take up for yourself. She said, you don't have to beat people up, but take up for yourself. So, you know, you learn how to become a man, you learn how to live life, and you learn how to to survive without having to be mean and and but you also learn how to not let people just completely you know beat you in the ground either so so i've always been been uh, i think part of the of my personality comes from that in my early years and then having to overcome things uh you know i've all i've always wanted to be the very best i could be it may not be i know i can't be like some of my heroes musically could be because of my physical limitations but I do know how good I, I'm, I'm able to be. And, and if I'm not excelling to that level, then I'm not satisfied with, mm -hmm. with who I am and what I'm doing. So, I mean, when I advise for young people, find what you love to do and pursue it. Pursue it and, and you know, making millions don't make you successful. I mean, it could if that's what your goal is maybe. But, but doing what you love to do every day of your life uh, – is success to me and I, i've got to do that for most of my life and i have i have a wonderful family i have uh i've had wonderful parents i've got a wonderful wife and kids um you know i've just i've had i've been real real fortunate and and uh haven't made a ton of money but but i've i've got more than my folks had you know and and uh so it's you know people can say well if he'd have done this or that you know he'd have been more successful or he could have took his his drive and done this or that, but I've done what I've loved to do. So, I, I mean, that's my suggestion is I don't, I've never felt like I've worked. You know, I don't feel like I've Beautiful. ever worked. Beautiful. Congratulations. I've never, like, <laughs> I've never felt, now I do, I, don't get me wrong. I mean, we've worked, we've worked hard You've today. been working all day. We've been working all day, <laughs> yeah, but I love sure. it. You can see how I love it. I mean, I, it's a passion for me. I, I love to talk about it. I love to talk about, uh, not myself necessarily, but just the, the things that, that, this band has got to accomplish mm -hmm. and, and our family and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I would advise people to do, 
to do what they love to do and, and at least at least try it. At mm-hmm. least try it and see if you can make it at it. And if you love something enough and you want to do something bad enough, you can do it. I mean, you can. It's it's like I said, look at what we've got. America's plentiful. Uh, you know, we've been through some hardships the last few years, but but America's plentiful and there's opportunity for somebody that, that to me that was always a great part about the country we've lived in is you could come from nothing and and you could be a entrepreneur you could you could actually build your own thing and and, and do your own thing nobody's telling you what you've got to do you can do it yourself it may fail but if it fails it's on your shoulders you know it's not on anybody else's so i'm glad i got to come up in that time well um before we go any websites you want to point people to i hear you have a fantastic instagram oh yeah yeah. (laughs) our instagram up to i think we got 2000 or something like that now 1200 i'm not sure we're we're all we're dinosaurs and we don't know how to operate this (laughs) stuff our facebook's great but uh yeah um instagram facebook twitter uh, appalachianroadshow.com or the appalachianroadshow.com either one of them will take you to our website and uh, we're we're actually getting ready for our new release so I think they're, they're, uh, the website's not necessarily under construction, but we're going to have a couple of pages that people can go to to buy the new product and, and new T-shirts. New, uh, we're going to have vinyl and CDs and cool. all that. So, so yeah, go to that and, and check out our tour schedule. And please come and see us. Support live music anywhere you can. It don't matter if it's us, whoever it is. Live music is... It is the the bee's knees. It's The live music's the way to go. There's, there's nothing. We just played this radio um radio thing a few minutes ago before i got here and it was just us in a room no monitors just a microphone and we just spaced ourselves out from the microphone and the guy was recording so we did about half a verse he said okay the banjo back up about a foot the guitar come in about a foot when you sing lead you be this close and daryl when you sing lead you be this close and three songs like that and we we just did it like we were doing a show we just did them all back to back capo changes on on air and it was live and it felt so good. I mean, and and same as the, the the fair. You know, just it, when you when you heard Larry Fest, you saw all that music at Larry Fest last week. It's just, it's an incredible experience. So go out and support live music, whether it's us or whoever it is. We will. And with that, I know you've been talking and singing all day. Could yeah, you maybe. leave us with Gospel Train? I can try. This guy has been working hard flying crisscross across the country all week, Wisconsin to Georgia to Minnesota. This is a song that uh, it's called Gospel Train. It's on our Tribulations Project. And uh, a good friend of mine, Baptist preacher out of uh, uh, southern Ohio, his granddad, he said he used to sing it. He remembered him singing it when he was was, uh, getting up. He would get up to preach. And he said this would be something. I can just imagine them getting up and having heaven on their mind, you know, and, and that, that's one thing this song uh, does for me. <clears throat> I can just see them old men uh, doing that. So just imagine me getting up, but I'm not preaching. I'm just going to get up and, and sing one. But this is called The Gospel Train. I got up with heaven on my mind. I got up with heaven on my mind. Lord, I dreamed of a train, was a glory-bound train. I wonder will my children be on that train. I wonder will my mama be on that train. I wonder will my mama be on that train. Oh, this train's a gospel train and it's running through this land. I wonder will my mama be on that train. Lord, I just can't keep from crying sometimes. I just can't keep from crying sometimes. When I look around and see 
what the Lord has done for me. I wonder will my children be on that train. I got up with heaven on my mind. I got up with heaven on my mind. Lord, I dreamed of a train. Was a glory bound train. I wonder will my children be on that train? <laughs> thank you so much, Barry Abernathy. Thank you thank so you, much. Ricky, it's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Shine Freely podcast. We have new conversations every week that you can find on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out my blog and information about executive coaching at shinefreely.com.